I can't enjoy the things that I want to enjoy, or you you can't even figure out what is it that you enjoy because you spent your entire life thinking, I'm just gonna do things for the church. I'm gonna make God happy. What about me? When am I gonna make me happy? You know. Hello and welcome to the podcast, another episode of Queerly Overthinking. I'm your host, Adam Harper. I'm so excited today to introduce my truly amazing friend, Rhea, in this episode. Hello, Rhea. Hi, Adam. I'm so excited to have you on today, and we're going to be talking about some things that people don't really talk about that often, but it's been weighing, you know, on our minds, and we felt like we wanted to come together to share this with folks, and specifically, we're going to be talking about religious trauma and the purity culture behind it and specifically we're going to be including you know not only a brief story of how we first met but then our personal backgrounds with religion and this podcast episode is going to contain discussions of religious trauma sexuality and other sensitive topics and while the views that we're going to be expressing are of our own opinions we ask that they be respected and however we also ask that our listeners respect the opinions of others. And as we approach these topics with an open mind and understanding that uh, these are sensitive issues for some people. But with that said, let's get started. So tell our listeners a little bit more about you, a little brief introduction and some highlights about who you are. Yeah. Um, hello, my name is Ria. I am a 31 years old, non-binary, Korean-American um, Korean-American burnt-out software engineer who sings for fun. Um, I am originally from the East Coast, specifically New Jersey, and my family's in New Jersey. I went to college in New York City. I studied marketing in university, actually, and ended up going to like a coding boot camp to pursue a career as a web developer, which is why like I ended up in... Dallas a few years after the boot camp and that's how I moved there for a job on whatnot but I'm originally from the east coast um recently I got laid off and I've been spending a lot of time reflecting on what happiness means what rest means and also trying to explore my past trauma uh, specifically religious trauma and purity culture and how those things affected um how I grew up, the person that I am today. I am a child of a religious worker. My father is a minister. He was actually a Christian missionary in Japan. So we, I, my early childhood, close to 10 years, was spent in Japan. So I am Korean because my parents are from over there, but I feel like a lot of my early childhood and like I grew up in a Japanese society. So culturally, I really identify a lot more with certain like Japanese cultural elements more than Korean. So, yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing that. And I love how... I've been able to experience a little bit of that culture with you. I love um, how you've introduced me to so many different, like, 
foods and different beverages and such. Like I appreciate uh, being able to like get a glimpse into that culture anytime that we've ever gone out and hung out together. And um, I'm curious then, kind of like segueing more into um, what we're talking about today, like what specifically did you believe in or like what were you raised in and was it a specific denomination? Yeah, so um, like I said, my father was a Christian missionary and that's how I ended up in Japan. Um, specifically, the, the sect that we were in when I first moved to New Jersey and my father had gotten a job at a large like, Korean American church that was Presbyterian. I think that's what the what my father like identified with in terms of denomination. But Presbyterian is basically like a sect under Protestant. I think like some people would describe like my father's denomination as Protestant. Um, specifically, I what I know about Presbyterian churches is though at least in like Korean, like in like very specific to Korean American immigrant church experience. Um, what I've seen is in Presbyterian churches, there are a lot of like religious politics at play, um, specifically about who is considered like an elder, basically like somebody who is part of the church and they have like a lot more power uh, in how they can kind of like keep the church moving in a certain direction, kind of like the board of trustees in like a large company or something like that I grew up seeing a lot of those uh what do you what do you call it I call it the dirty little secret like the things that happen behind closed doors that typical churchgoers wouldn't really see unless you were like PK which is like um pastor's kid or MK which is missionary's kid and I was both right because my father was a missionary um and then when we moved to America, basically we started settling down and I became PK because now he was considered a pastor, not a missionary. Mm-hmm. What first comes to mind for you as far as like, what were you taught essentially to kind of have that same mentality of like live a certain way and you receive certain blessings? Speaking for myself and having gone up, grown up uh, Mormon or LDS, um, there's a lot of expectation and a lot of trauma and shame and guilt that kind of comes from certain teachings and beliefs. Um, it's difficult to unpack a lot of that kind of experience because it has evolved into trauma in a way of being expected to live and act a certain way to in order to gain some sort of like kingdom of glory right. or eternal blessings or something right. to that regard. Even after leaving the church and even after going through a process called uh, deconstruction, doing a lot of unpacking and going through these like therapy sessions to, you know, figure out what the hell happened in my life that I became so like self-deprecating and like with like extreme like low self-confidence, even after like trying to unpack all of that, I still can't seem to separate the things that I grew up accepting as truth because the church taught me and my father taught me because my father was the church. Um, even after being thousands of miles away from my family, that is the church, 
I know that I'll spend the rest of my life trying to figure out or why I am the way that I am today. Um, and I feel like I'm always feeling guilty about enjoying certain things or like enjoying anything. And like that probably has a lot to do with my neurodivergence. Like I got diagnosed as ADHD at 30 years old and I am 31 years old today. Um, basically, I was taught to deny my own humanity because I was never going to be good enough. Um, and like, I don't know, Christians always say this phrase, um, as part of like a prayer of confession, I am a great sinner in need of a great savior. And because I grew up in the church my entire life, that's the type of mentality that was literally encouraged among amongst people who were also part of the church. Like there's this sense of they're all competing on how much humility they can show and like you and I Adam you, you and I both know like one of the the qualities that is like so treasured by people in Christian communities is how humble can they be but when you reflect on like what does humility mean and why is it so treasured in religious context it's because it takes away your desires you don't get to really feel safe expressing and honoring your own like body and spiritual and emotional needs because you always have to put other people first. For example, especially because my father was a religious worker, like he was a religious leader in the Christian church. He loved helping people. And he kept telling me to like, hey, I know you love people you love helping people i didn't as, te as a teenager i hated people but he kept like telling me that hey you love people and you love helping people so you should pursue a career that focuses on helping people in the church and of course like any other naive child i wanted to please my parents so i did the best that i could to like participate in church things like um, being part of youth group leadership, doing um, worship team. And I, 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 that's like how I started playing guitar and bass and singing and stuff like that. Um, I enjoyed those elements, but there was always this like sense of guilt if I had failed to, I don't know, put Christ first, right? Like it doesn't matter what you want to do. It doesn't matter what your desires are because you're going to spend your life doing things for the church and you're never going to leave and we're going to demonize people for leaving the church because they decided to pursue their own desires when their own desires were evil because it's outside the context of the church as if it was like a bad thing to want to do things just for dare I say selfish happiness and like just the way that I describe it the concept of like pursuing joy, I tend to always like gravitate towards I'm being selfish. Like I don't deserve this because I was always supposed to do things for other people and I was supposed to be the last person to think about because I always had to make the people in the church happy. 
I have to make God happy. And if I didn't, then my life was worthless. It sounds so like silly, especially if you're that we were never part of the church but if you spent your whole life being socialized in this way to basically put your own needs down you start to lose sight of your own desires and needs and wants and you, you need to spend the rest of your life going to therapy because you can't figure out why you feel so guilty when you're just doing things because you want to do things and you can't figure out why I can't enjoy the things that I want to enjoy or you, you can't even figure out what is it that you enjoy because you spent your entire life thinking I'm just gonna do things for the church I'm gonna make God happy what about me when am I gonna make m me happy you know as you know, an adult now who has left the church myself um, and is experiencing life and you know, emotion and physical attraction and intimacy and things like that. That's a huge thing to unpack, like guilt and shame, because I remember when I was first starting to kind of experiment, like with my feelings with somebody, but then also like physically feeling attracted to somebody and having some sort of physical connection with someone, um, just a lot of feelings of guilt and shame and like I remember yeah <laughs> I remember like praying at the end of every time I like had a physical interaction with somebody no matter how far we went like thinking like god please take away the sin you know I I'm sorry I won't ever do it again you know and I just felt so horrible. Like I was like this awful human being for doing that. But it took a long time to deconstruct that for me. And it certainly like it was not an easy process. <laughs> when you were first trying to get in, like physically intimate with your like romantic or like sexual interest while you were still part of the church, did you always have this feeling of Oh, I should I should stop this because like I'm gonna like get punished for this later, and that you can't like actually follow through with things. And for me, like there were multiple times when I like almost had sex, right? And I, I I've never had sex, and it was my first like serious boyfriend or like any sort of like relationship with a normal boy who was really cute and met in college and we went out for coffee it's like supposed to be like a normal human experience especially as like a growing adult in university and like a new city one of the biggest things I wrestle with these days when I think about my religious trauma is how shame played a huge role in my life and how that still affects me to this day and how I go about my own platonic or romantic or sexual relationships. So I, before I moved to Texas, I was in the middle of uh, like a five-year relationship. I had started dating him when I transferred to my school in New York because I went to community school in New Jersey and I went to study business in New York and yeah, it was like a normal, what was supposed to be like a normal part of growing up and like being trying out like relationships with people. Because like I was at that time, I was commuting back and forth from 
um, New York to New Jersey to go to school because I had some like terrible roommate experience with a hoarder and a creep and with my Craigslist roommates. But anyway, I was oh my God. yeah, that, that, that's another episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I was commuting back and forth. But one time, like when I first started dating my ex, my boyfriend at the time, he said he wanted to like spend some more time with me and I was getting late and it was after a date. Uh, which meant for us, because he lived with his family and I lived with my family back in New Jersey. And for us, that meant staying at a hotel. And I had already had conversations with him about um, how far I was comfortable going. And I let him know that, hey, I'm a Christian and I actually don't believe in having sex before marriage. And I want to honor that because that's what god says was good for me to do or whatever the fuck i said i don't know <laughs> and like i was playing fair game because i i knew it was my first time dating with somebody outside the church or just like dating in general and actually like before we became like mutually exclusive i was also like super anxious about like am i being fair to this dude right now because normal healthy dudes are horny and they want to have sex and I wasn't going to or at least I thought I wasn't and does that make me a bad person for wanting to experience romance in a seemingly like normal way that like college kids did at that time so that's like first shame, right? Like, am I even allowed to do this? As if like religion was telling me I can't have normal relationships because you're not going to have sex. Your relationship where you get to have sex is when you get married and you're on your honeymoon. The first night, that's when you bang. Before that, you're just going to remove all of that part of your humanity. And you're not going to do that until you get married. But anyway, so like that night, I did go to a hotel with him. Like I was comfortable kissing. I really like kissing. And like things started getting heavier. And articles of clothing were getting removed. And we were about to, you know, remove our underwear and like start getting, you know, close to like penetrative sex. And this entire time I'm thinking, wow, I need to stop this. I need to keep my virginity. But I want to get intimate with this guy so badly. All I know is God is going to be so ashamed of me and I'm, he's going to be disappointed because I couldn't keep my virginity until the day that I got married. And I remember like, the following week, I was like praying for forgiveness because I'm a dirty human being for just like wanting to honor your like sexual urges, right? But up until having sex, I just was always guilt-ridden. When we actually did have penetrative sex, the first time we tried, I actually couldn't have sex. His penis literally would not go inside me. And, you know, if I had access to comprehensive, wholesome 
sex education with no religious subtext, with no shame, I should have understood and known that it takes time for people with, um, with vaginas to get ready to have penetrative sex and that you need to prepare lube to prepare insertion. And I had no idea. I, all, all I knew about sex was, okay, dick goes in, you pump up and down, and you're supposed to feel good, and then something is supposed to come out <laughs> at the end. <laughs> no, that's literally all I knew. Um, because okay. Wait nine more months, and then a baby comes out. Exactly. Or something like that, yeah. Yeah, you, you just have <laughs> sex. You, the guy just pumps in and out, and he's going to feel good, and the woman just gets preggers, and you have a baby. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> there was no conversation about how the woman should feel that pleasure was supposed to be part of physical intimacy. But there was none of that. It was just purely for procreation. In fact, like some denominations still say no to birth control. Did you know that? Oh, I I heard of that. I don't know. Um, I, I've heard that some are like somewhat supportive, but still very taboo because they're like, if you're going to have sex, it should be only to be, you know, making a child. It should not be for pleasure or something like that. And so I, I, I yeah, I've, I've heard that. By default, it was the responsibility of the woman to do whatever they can to please their husbands. And even the responsibility of birth control was somehow on the femme folks or woman and I identified as a woman. Actually, I didn't even have the vocabulary to describe my gender identity. Because um, also at that time, I just like didn't feel safe enough to even talk about LGBTQ issues. We just didn't talk about it. I mean, like there's a lot of like progressive churches today that like said we love gay people and we believe um, we validate um, the LGBTQ Christians. And yeah, a lot of churches are saying now that, you know, gay people are still going to heaven if they accept that Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, right? But I think that like, now that I look back after coming to terms with my like non-binariness, um, I think those are like the small things that, that now I can pinpoint and be like, oh, like I was probably non-binary all along, but I just never had enough safety in order for me to explore that land there are other options you don't have to play into the gender roles as defined by society and for me it was just in the context of the church and like I, I still didn't tell my parents about me being non-binary either and I had accepted that they're probably never going to know and they don't need to know and it's 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 kind of sad I, I wish they would know, but I know that they just first, like, they wouldn't understand. And they wouldn't understand. And even if I do tell them, they're probably just not going to start using different pronouns. I mean, like, it, I talk to my parents in Korean and Japanese, so we don't really have concepts of pronouns in the first place. But it's just a conversation that I had accepted as, like, it's, it's not going to happen because they're also going to think that I'm going to burn in hell.
it's kind of hard to educate and I mean educate also kind of has like a connotation to it where it's like let me inform you about something you don't know or something like that but it's like it's hard to impart knowledge and to help share with somebody that has played a significant role in your life um the reasons why something's important to you and to just already kind of have an inkling of where their minds already are at it does kind of provide that you know hesitation of like for my own mental well-being I don't feel like I need to inform certain individuals of my day-to-day activities let alone like changes in my life that I don't feel like are going to necessarily benefit this relationship because it probably like it's a very tricky thing to navigate and um on that same note you know with education and understanding you know like you mentioned like wholesome education, like wholesome sexual education too. I wish I had known about sex a lot earlier in life. Um, because I am honestly surprised that like I avoided, you know, a lot of STDs when I was first, you know, experimenting because I didn't know they existed. I didn't know what HIV was. I didn't know what an STD was. I didn't know what like gonorrhea was. You know, I did not get my HPV shots until I was in my mid twenties because my parents told me that they thought I was only going to have sex with one woman and (laughs) get married to that one woman. And I'm like, well, psych, I'm gay and I like men. (laughs) But I just feel like I, I wish this education and knowledge was more widely available and more widely accepted, not just by like our generation, but by like our parents' generation. And, and, you know, like obviously there's been progress made in that as, you know, time has gone on, but I very much feel like it, it, it could be a great influence for the future, like, generations to come and such but we're just we're the ones having to like go to therapy to have to unpack not only our own like who are we are like a divulging of our identities to ourselves but then like unpacking the like sweeping it under the rug mentalities that we were essentially instilled with you know what I mean yeah there's so many things I want to talk about just from what you said in the past minute but let me let me start out with one let me let's talk about gaslighting in the church oh <laughs> you just went there i'm going oh God, there yes. bitch. we're going there <laughs> um gaslighting it's like i don't know y'all could look up the actual definition but i know what it is it's when some people say certain things or do certain things to make you question your own sanity. And I think that's what religion Mm. did to me all my life. Mm -hmm. One example, when you have a problem and you pray, and they always tell you, when you pray, God will answer in one of three ways. Yes, no, or maybe but now I'm looking back, looking back like, no, he doesn't answer anything. Y'all are just making this shit up because God doesn't answer anyone. Wait, you were taught it was a distinct three ways, like three answers? Yeah, it was yes, no, or maybe. Oh my gosh, because the way I was taught, it was like much more ambiguous. Oh my God, tell that. me. It was much more like, it, it was more like a 
feeling that you would have and you'd have to decipher that feeling yourself. Sometimes there might be like words or what thoughts or sentences, but we were not taught as, uh, at least I was not taught as a Mormon, um, that the way God spoke to you was that clear of an answer. I wish I had that clear of an answer. Wait, wait, so how does the Mormon church (laughs) teach you to hear God? Like, you know, that some people like always say, oh, I, I, I heard a response from God. I have a message from God and it's very clear. And I, I'm, the, I'm the prophet. Like, I, I talk to God directly. I've always wondered, what does he sound like? What does he say? What do you um, say? Well, the Mormons, at least. Okay, so I, again, I'm speaking from my own experience and from what I was taught. I'm sure it varies from whatever Mormon you talk to. Um, but I was taught that... Everybody is born with, like, the light of Christ within them, which is why if you make a good decision, your light of Christ increases because you, like, had some sort of connection with God in that way, but, like, it's not an actual voice. But then when you get baptized, you're given the gift of the Holy Ghost, and that can sometimes be more so distinct promptings or feelings. Um, And... Oftentimes, I was told that, like, answers don't really come until after you take action. And then after you've taken an action, it, like, can come as a feeling of, like, content. Like, you did a good job. Or, like, maybe that wasn't the right move. It was very much, like, after the fact from what I was told uh, in my later years. And then sometimes people would speak, like... Or uh, say that like somebody was like had spoken to them, and oftentimes it was just like their own voice in their head, but they would attribute that to like either the Holy Spirit or God, like calling them out. So, so Mormons are very you? diverse. Isn't that just you like knowing what you want and then taking actions because you know what you want best, not God? I mean, that's where there's the big gray area. I mean, that's that gaslighting, right? Like. Being told, <laughs> even though you know what you want, that you can't trust your own intuition because your intuition and yourself is so sinful and it's not trustworthy. You have to trust God. Lean not onto your own understanding, right? That's the, the first day quote to be like, no, don't trust yourself. When I told my friends about this who didn't go to church, they looked shocked, like, you can't trust yourself. Who the fuck are you going to trust? And I'd be like, I trust God. <laughs> Bitch, I trust God. I was just going to say, yeah, 100%. And I have a really hard time sometimes uh, believing when people say they're doing something because they um, are being prompted to by God. Because, you know, if, like, as you just said, like, if I, I can't trust myself, but I can trust God. But I'm like, it just leads to, like, I, I just question, like, sometimes sanity at that point I question like is this person actually doing this like with good intentions or do they need to like see a like psychiatrist or something right. like, that? like it depends on the situation and I'm not saying everybody is like that but it's like it's very that's where again it kind of circles back to that same thought that I had earlier of just religion oftentimes can exploit people's thoughts and feelings and it give like give promises of answers and blessings from God if you just believe and trust in God and not always yourself. But I will say as a Mormon, um, we were also like 
taught to trust in God, but also like trust in ourselves, but to like trust in God more, I feel like that is a big thing that was leveraged. And then, um, also like church leaders too. It was very, Oh, this could be a whole nother podcast episode too. But in 2015 in November, uh, the LDS church basically said like, if you have a child that is associated in any way with a queer family member, like, so let's say a mom and a dad had a kid and then they split up and the dad goes off and, you know, realizes he's gay and wants to be with a man. That child cannot be baptized or be associated in the church as of November 2015. They then reversed that policy because they received word from God. Like, and these are like the apostles and the prophets and like the leaders and such um, mm. saying that like they needed to rescind that policy. And so that's where it is difficult for me to, you know, accept religion where that you you have like three levels of trust you're having to build with yourself with like God yourself and then there's like the middlemen like the apostles and like church leaders and pastors and such like that you know and it's like how can I trust myself or even trust what's being told to me if I'm like having to question constantly which then questioning is also a big thing too where it's like am I allowed to question or am I just supposed to follow blindly you know what I mean like am I supposed to just accept what's before me without actually putting some facts behind this you know it's like it's very touchy very taboo it's been really beneficial for me to kind of just see how things happen across the aisle essentially you know compare <laughs> but, notes um yeah literally <laughs> um was there anything else specific that you wanted to touch on as we kind of wrap up this episode i don't know if i was able to communicate my ideas in like a clear coherent manner but the thing that I'm trying to communicate and share today with you and whoever is listening is trauma in the form of religion is real trauma and there is harm, like real active harm done. And that if you feel harmed by religion, you get to do the work to decide what you actually believe in. And it is actually up to you. And that you are smart enough, you have agency over your own body and your mind and your spirit to be able to choose what it is that you believe in and want to believe in and subscribe to. It doesn't have to be dependent on anyone else. You get to radically accept and love yourself the way you are. And if you feel any sort of shame, maybe it's time to think about that a little bit. I just want people to understand you have power over your own selves and there is help out there and there are other people like you who have been harmed by um, religion and you don't have to feel ashamed about talking about it. And the hope is through having these type of like messy discussions or at least like start doing this that other people will follow suit. I know that was supposed to be like one thing, but it's it just TLDR, love yourself. Because I, I, it took me 31 years to get to a point where I could truly love myself, but I'm doing it and I, I love myself for it. So I love that. Thank you so much, Rhea, for sharing that. And like, for pouring your heart out and for sharing space with me. And it really means a lot to be 
able to have this space with you and to open up about things that are, you know, big topics to talk about. And um, I really do hope that there is somebody who can take something away from this episode and know that they are not alone <laughs> and that um, it's okay to trust yourself and it's okay to ask those questions and it's okay to put yourself first and everything that we, that you've said that we've collectively agreed on together, you know, so uh, thank you again so much for being here. And I hope that I can like, see you again in another episode i definitely want like this is not the last time like you're gonna be back i know for Yay! sure <laughs> yeah thanks so much for having me of course hope you have a good rest of your day and for everybody listening hope you all have an amazing day as well be sure to subscribe and hit that notification bell to see when new episodes drop but until then we will see you in the next episode have a good one y'all clearly overthinking is produced by adam harper and cass cooper it is edited by Adam Harper with audio mixing by Necessary Outlet Productions. You can follow Queerly Overthinking on Instagram at Queerly Overthinking and find more at www.queerlyoverthinking.com.